Jay Schultz here, WHAW 101.3 FM, Harvard, Illinois. It is time for Cinema Talk with Bruce and Jay. And on the line, my very good friend, Bruce Stout. Bruce, how are we doing today? I'm doing well. I'm coping with the winter-like uh, weather in the middle, not the middle of May, early May. But, uh, yeah, other than that, no, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm very happy with the Cubs. They seem to be on a tear recently. They are. Um, they very are. happy with that. So, you know, life is good. How about you? I'm, you know, doing well. I'm very happy that uh, the theaters are opening up again. I went to see a movie the other day with my wife, the uh, Jason Statham movie, Wrath of Man, directed by Guy Ritchie. Guy I Ri- saw that. Guy Ritchie, who yeah. started uh, Jason Statham's career, actually, cast him in the movie Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels about 20 years ago, and uh, Statham has become a huge, and Guy Ritchie's, uh, you know, a huge director as well, you know, directing uh, the Sherlock yeah. Holmes films with Robert Downey Jr., but uh, we saw that. It was very, very good. Have you had a chance to go to the theater? Uh, you know, it's, oh my gosh, it's been eons. It's been quite a while, yeah. and it's funny, I in cinemas, and of course with you in video, no, it's been a long time since I actually went to an actual cinema, you know, a movie theater and saw a film, and I miss it, to be very honest yeah. with you. Yeah, there is definitely a communal uh, feeling, and I think it's going to take a while. I've noticed that uh, the crowds are uh, thin um, to begin with. Uh, it's been to three movies now. I got to see Nomad Land. Uh, the movie with um, oh help me out there the Academy Award winner uh, who was in Fargo yeah they won the yes uh, you mean Frances McDormand Frances, Mc, no? Frances McDormand yes maybe yep. yep she won again oh, this is she, yeah she won her third Academy Award so uh, she's now tied with Catherine Hepburn for the most Academy Awards you want to hear a really yeah. yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead. You want to hear a really strange caveat about Frances McDormand? She has the same birthday I do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. I mean, she's she was a... born in third, so yeah, send yeah. it that way. Yeah, Frances McDormand, which is an alias. That's an assumed name. That's not a real name. You know, she's married to one yeah. of the co- no, she's, she married... she's married to one of the Cohen brothers, actually. I'm not sure if it's Joel or uh, Ethan. Joel. Yeah. I think it's Joel. Yeah. Do you remember her first Academy Award win? Well, it's for Fargo. Uh, no. Her mm-hmm. first Academy Award win was Mississippi Burning. For what, though? No, she's only won three. She won for Fargo. She won for three billboards out of Ebbings, Missouri. And oh, okay. She, yeah. I could be wrong. I could yeah. be wrong. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I, I, so and she was wonderful in Mississippi Burning. Don't get, you know, no. She's an amazing actress. But yeah. um, I know she's yeah. only won three because the, the big – Hullabaloo is that she's the first person since Catherine Hepburn. Well, take that back. Daniel Day-Lewis has won three as well, but she's the first female actress to win three since Catherine Hepburn. I mean, Meryl Meryl Streep didn't even win three. Meryl Streep, you know, has been nominated, you know, forever, but she's only won two. So, Bruce, as we do uh, every month, I I need to move us into this. We uh, always, before we get into our topic today, we always go back and look in remembrance at those actors and actresses and other uh, you know, uh, people that are important to our culture, our pop culture, or our, our regular culture that we've lost over the last year, or I'm sorry, the last month. So uh, real quickly, I'll start with number one, actor Walter Okovitz passed away April 6th at the age of 72. He had 103 acting credits, most notably the movie Twin Peaks, 
Twin Peaks Fire, Walk With Me, The Client, uh, based on the John Grisham book, 1941, directed by Steven Spielberg. And he had reoccurring roles on the TV series Dolly, Who's the Boss, and Night Court. Uh, any thoughts on Mr. Olkovitz? Well, let me start by saying I'm a huge fan of Twin Peaks, not only the TV series Twin Peaks, but also the the film, uh, you know, cinema release Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Um, it's, it's David Lynch is sort of the brain trust of, you know, not only the TV series, but also that film. And it's terrific, and it's often overlooked. So, I mean, if I were to go to a video store nowadays and look for uh, any kind of TV series, I would go after Twin Peaks. And he's a great loss, unfortunately. But, yeah, I highly recommend Twin Peaks as well as the film uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. So, Bruce, Bruce, I'd have to tell you, though, you you wouldn't be able to find a video store anymore. I'm sorry. They're gone. (laughs) You'd be be hard. You'd have to. Go, you'd have to go. The last blockbuster in the world is in Bend, Oregon, and I think like Family Video closed all their stores as well. So there's there's no more video oh stores. Goodness. Yeah, you have to. We well, can go to your public library. A lot of libraries carry uh, you know, movies and DVD, or you can get them from Netflix. Is true? Yeah. That, so yes, but yeah, unfortunately, the video store, and that's we could do a whole show about the video store experience. I'd love to maybe delve into that someday because there's some really good content on that. But yeah, they're gone. Oh, so yeah. Bruce, why don't you go to number two? Number two is actor-director James Hampton. He passed away April 7th at the age of 84. Hampton had 93 acting credits, most notably Sling Blade, great film, by the way, Teen Wolf, not so much in my opinion, The Longest Yard, Pump Up the Volume, and The China Syndrome. He had 14 directing credits, including the TV show Sister, Sister, Grace Under Fire, Boston Common, and Evening Shade. So that's quite a resume. Your thoughts? He actually uh, had one starring role in his career, and it was in a movie called Homps, H-A-W-P-S, about this group (laughs) of cavalrymen that had to ride camels. They brought these camels in for them to ride uh, in some desert area in the U.S. It's supposed to be a comedy. It's actually it's actually pretty good. It's a good actor. Um, I can't remember. He had a really big role in the, the original Long- Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds, and that's where I really remember mm-hmm. him the most. So let me move to number three real quick. Writer and producer Ann Beats passed away April 7th at the age of 74. Beats was one of the original writers for Saturday Night Live and created the TV show Square Pegs, which was not around that long, but it's seen as like a one of those transcendent TV shows that ended up creating mm-hmm. things like 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 Mean Girls doesn't exist if Square Pegs doesn't exist. Uh, you know, they talked to Tina Fey. She said she got her inspiration from Square Pegs. Uh, Beast was the first yeah. female cont- contributing editor to the National Lampoon magazine. She had 26 writing credits. To you, my friend. You know, Ann Beats, I think, is, you know, we talked about, you know, she was one of the masterminds of Saturday Night Live, and this was back in, like, 1975, but I remember seeing her name, Ann Beats, on the credit list, Um, and then occasionally, I don't know if you know this, she would appear in certain sketches, like, almost like a cameo, but when you consider she was the 
you know, a, a principal writer for Saturday Night Live when it was in its infancy. She did a great job. She was a great writer and a decent comedic actress. So I just want to interject that because you and I are more or less the same age. So this goes all the way back to like 1975. So do you want me to move on? Yeah, absolutely. To my next. Yep, you, you go ahead. Okay, here we go. This is an internationally known figure. And it's Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, husband of Queen Elizabeth II, for 73 years, passed away April 9th at the age of 99. Philip was portrayed by James Cromwell in the 2006 film The Queen. That's amazing. But you tell me your thoughts. The 73 years is striking to me. Um, I was just... Uh, last week, there was a picture posted of of uh, President Biden and his wife Jill with Rosalind and Jimmy Carter, and they've been married for approximately the same amount of time, uh, 70 some odd, 72, 73 years. So that's amazing that that their love and their and their marriage lasted uh, that long through their lives. And, and um, you know, God, God bless him. I mean, that's that's really something. So let me jump to uh, you know I saw that shot too. I yeah. I, I saw the, sh- uh, the shot with G- uh, Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter. I know the picture you're talking yes. about. Yes, very moving. You're yeah, right, and absolutely. we should all be so lucky to live that long. So I guess it's uh, it's your turn. No, actually, I don't, I want you to do the next one because I really want to do number six. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, My next one is rap musician Earl Simons, known as DMX, passed away April 9th at the age of 50. DMX had 43 acting credits, most notably Exit Wounds and Romeo Must Die. His music appeared in 75 movies or TV shows. And I'm not going to lie to you, Jay Schultz. I know almost nothing about Earl Simmons. <laughs> Other than he's DMX, that's all I know. And, and I, I believe I, I did see the movie Exit Wounds. I, I think I saw Romeo Must Die as well. But, uh, yeah, very young, uh, very young, and it's uh, very tragic that uh, he passed away. And here's another one. Um, yes, this is number six. Actress Helen McCrory. Passed away April 15th at the age of 52. She had 72 acting credits, most notably her playing Aunt Paul on the TV series Peaky Blinders. If you haven't seen Peaky Blinders, you must watch Peaky Blinders. Uh, Cillian Murphy's in it. Tom Hardy's in it. Tom Hardy is in this movie, and you do not know it's Tom Hardy. I had to go and look in the credits on IMDb to figure out who was Tom Hardy playing. And he was playing the person I thought it was, but... He doesn't look anything like himself, doesn't sound anything like himself. Uh, but Hel- she's like the glue to this TV show, and I know they're doing one more year, and I know it's going to be painstakingly hard for them to do this without her because she was wonderful. Um, she also appeared in the movie. Mm-hmm. She appeared in the movies The Queen, The Count of Monte Cristo, Harry Potter and the Deadly Hollows Part 1 and 2, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, and Skyfall. And she's the wife of actor Damian Lewis. Uh, Damian Lewis... Um, I know he had a TV show, and he also, uh, gosh, what is that um, HBO series that he's on? I can't remember. He, he's a wonderful actor as well, so uh, rest in peace, Ms. McCrory. Well, you know, let me let me piggyback on what you said about Helen McCrory. You mentioned Tom Hardy, 
And Tom Hardy is kind of along the lines of, of Christian Bale, meaning he's extraordinarily versatile. So if you take him in Bane, for example, like the Dark Knight series, right? Um, you know, that was Tom Hardy. And you're absolutely right. He keeps turning up in these films and you don't recognize him. He's like a man of a thousand faces or whatever that expression is. But anyway, I just wanted to comment That's all right. uh, on that. Right. So I'm going to move on. Uh, this is a personal one, frankly, a very personal one for me. Former Vice President Walter Mondale passed away April 19th at the age of 93. Mondale served as Vice President under Jimmy Carter. I'm sure we all remember that. From 1976 to 1980, he was the Democratic nominee for president in 1984. But lost to then uh president ronald reagan and i can can i can i elaborate on that a little sure bit? go ahead yeah yeah um okay so on the ticket in 1984 we had walter mondale running for president which he lost i understand that and his vice presidential uh choice was geraldine ferraro um, from New York, so it was a. I think it was the first time there was a woman yes. nominated as a candidate. Um, and now look at this now with Kamala Harris. So I don't know why I remember that so vividly. But go ahead, you're you're up. That's all right. No, and uh, yeah, rest in peace, uh, Vice President. Well, I've I've heard he was an extremely decent human being, and I wouldn't be surprised uh, because he served as VP to Jimmy Carter, who was probably the greatest yeah. human, greatest humanitarian of our time. Um, Jim Steinman, the composer, yeah. lyricist, he was a composer, lyricist, and record producer who worked with artists like Meatloaf, Celine Dion, Bonnie Tyler, and more, passed away April 19th at the age of 73. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2012 and won Album of the Year at the 1997 Grammy Awards for producing songs on Celine Dion's Falling Into You, which featured the Steinman pen power ballad, It's All Coming Back to Me Now. Steinman wrote the music for Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell, which is a tre- <laughs> tremendous album, tremendous album, released in 1977, one of the top-selling albums of all time, reaching 14-time platinum status by the RIAA. So, yes, yeah, just some great, great music coming from Mr. Steinman. Rest in peace. Yeah, we had that album, Bad Out of Hell, yeah. growing, oh, yeah. growing up. A lot of us did. Uh, The the cover alone is worth the price of admission, so to speak. You know what I mean? All right, so I'm going to move on. Uh, Director-producer Monty Hellman passed away April 20th at the age of 91. Hellman was a protege of Roger Corman and collaborated with Jack Nicholson on several films in the late 50s, early 60s, including Flight to Fury, Ride the Whirlwind, The Shooting. His most famous work was Two-Lane Blacktop, which starred Warren Oates, James Taylor. Is that the musician, by the way? Yep, correct. And and Dennis Wilson, who also was with the Beach Boys, the musician. So, yeah, that's impressive to me. Yeah, no, it really is. And there's a lot. If you look... You, we could probably do a whole segment on Roger Corman and all of the directors that worked with Roger Corman, right? Joe Dante, uh-huh. Ron Howard, you oh, know, yeah. yeah, Monte Hellman. I mean, there's there's a ton. I think Coppola and uh, yeah. Scorsese both worked with him too. I mean, you know, I mean, th- this guy is like like 
like the branch is like six degrees of Roger Corman, you know, that Kevin Bacon thing. The guy, he just yeah, huge yeah, influence, huge influence on Hollywood. Anyway, country rock pioneer Rusty Young passed away April 21st at the age of 75. He was the lead singer for the country rock Americana band Poco. And I don't, I don't have much more on him, but he did, but uh, he did pass away. I did want to note it. So I'll let you go to uh, number 11. Well, real quickly, I yeah. do remember Poco. Okay, when I was from like oh, from high school and yeah. so forth. So yeah, I don't have a lot of material about Rusty Young, you know, either. Right. But, okay, I'll move right along. Yep. Um, after Felix Sila or Sia, as they say in Spanish, passed away April 16th at the age of 84. Sia had 49 acting credits, most notably uh, cousin in the Adams family i didn't know that he was cousin uh, it, television yeah. series. he was cousin it he yep. was cousin which was a hand basically wasn't it no cousin it was that furry creature right that one you never saw anybody oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 okay i'm sorry i get it confused um he also appeared in Spaceballs, star wars oh the return of the jedi one of my favorites and the golden child and poltergeist can you elaborate on that at all i really you know other than cousin i mean i remember him in these other movies but uh i don't you know really know much but um he lived a i mean he had a good life 84 so rest in peace mr sia see how do you pronounce it there you go okay all right uh i in Spanish, that's how you would okay. say it, yes. Rapper Shock G, also known as Humpty Hump, the frontman for Digital <laughs> Underground, passed away April 22nd at the age of 57. Digital Underground had a string of hits in the early 90s, including The Humpty Dance and Do What You Like. I'm not a rap fan, <laughs> but I know that this, I mean, you see these videos on all the time if you ever watch any classic yeah. MTV stuff. So uh, rest in peace, uh, uh, Shock G. <laughs> Yeah, rest in peace. Even if you don't like hip hop or yeah, rap, yeah, right. rest in peace. Rap, sorry. I'm gonna move on. This one's kind of personal for me. Uh, Bay City Rollers frontman Les McKeon passed away April 22nd at the age of 65. The group was a pop sensation in the 1970s, and their signature hit was Saturday Night, which was number one on the Billboard Top 100 in 1975. And what I will share with you is it's almost like a mantra when Saturday night came out by the <laughs> Bay City Rollers. And we were all chanting, like I said, it was like a mantra. We were all chanting. Come on, Bruce. Yeah, you were at the roller skating rink, right, when that was coming on, right? Yeah. Oh, you better believe it. Absolutely. To the roller rink. Yeah, those were great. Those were great. And, you know. And then the chicks liked it too. Oh yeah, the, <laughs> you know, the ladies. Yeah, yes. <laughs> the door. Yeah. All right, uh, astronaut yeah, sorry, astronaut Michael Collins passed away April twenty eighth uh, at the age of ninety. Collins was part of the Apollo eleven mission to the moon. He retired from NASA in nineteen seventy, and after leaving the space agency, he served as director of the National Air and Space Museum and as undersecretary of the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, and everyone should know there's a famous picture of him. Uh, in space, uh, taking a picture of the moon and Earth, and he's the only living being not on the moon and Earth at the time because the um, other two astronauts were on the moon, and he was, and then and there obviously everyone else was on the Earth, and he was the only one in space at the time. 
You know, I'll piggyback on what you yeah. just said. Michael Collins, uh, and I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Neil Armstrong obviously was the first human man on the moon, right. and we know all of the archives and so forth. And even Buzz Aldrin got a lot of publicity. Michael Collins didn't really get that much uh, publicity, but he was vital to the mission. And then, right. you know, Apollo 11, you know, Man on the Moon, Walter Cronkite, you know what I mean? It was huge. But I, I always felt that Michael Collins was kind of shortchanged. He didn't get the, not publicity, well, he didn't get the hype that I think it was deserving of him. Does that make sense? Yep, yep. Bruce, I want you to jump into the next one here, real quick, because this one we're going to have to talk oh. about just for a little bit. No problem. Academy Award winning actress Olympia Dukakis passed away May 1st at the age of 89. Dukakis had 121 acting credits, most notably Mr. Holland's Opus, uh, Mighty Aphrodite, that's a great film, by the way, Look Who's Talking, Steel Magnolias, Working Girl, and Moonstruck, for which she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. She also, in 1988, she won the Golden Globe for the same performance. And I'm going to just real quickly, yeah. do, do you know who she's related to? No, I do not. Michael Dukakis. Oh, I didn't like know the that. Presidential, oh, yeah. The run, yeah, yeah, Michael Dukakis. Well, that's she was, his sister. She was wonderful. If you remember the uh, when we were both at Blockbuster, when they did the Moonstruck trailer, they'd always have her that credit, that uh, Moonstruck scene where she goes, snap out of it to uh, share because that's she was clear. right. That's clear. Yeah, that's clear, right. <laughs> yeah, no, she no, was I mean, wonderful. Yeah, she, sister of Michael Dukakis, and it coincided perfectly because that was right around 1987-88 when Michael Dukakis, her brother, was running for president. For president I didn't yeah. want that to be unnoticed. All right, go ahead. Move All right, on. dance legend uh, Jock D'Amboise passed away May 3rd at the age of 86. He had, a, he had 10 acting credits, most notably uh, the uh, musicals Carousel and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. He started ballet dance at the age of seven, and by the age of 15, he joined the New York City Ballet. Two years later, when he was 17, uh, I don't have this written down here, but two years later, he was the lead dancer in the New York City Ballet. That tells you what kind of a dancer this guy was. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, right, right, right. Uh, yeah. In 1976, he founded the National Dance Institute in New York City, teaching children how to dance. His efforts with the NDI were filmed in documentary form in 1982, and the effort received an Academy Award for Best Documentary. Uh, the, the name of the documentary is called He Makes Me Feel Like Dance and directed by Emil like Andolino. So, yeah, uh, rest in peace, Mr. Dan Boys. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, moving right along, yep. my next one is model and 80s music video star Tawny Katane passed away May 8th at the age of 59. Katane had 45 uh, credits, uh, most notably the fiancé of Tom Hanks in Bachelor Party and the video Vixen in the way yeah, I, we all remember oh, that. Yes. So, <laughs> video, here I go again. Yep. I don't know if that's yep. fortunate or unfortunate. Uh, this is love or still of the night. I just remember her being beautiful oh, and yes. I think she was taken way too early. One. She was, uh, yeah, she was wonderful. Bachelor Party is one of my favorite you know just fun films and uh she was great as yeah. the, as the opposite uh, you know of, of you know tom hanks and 
And uh, yeah, no, she, yeah. she was she was very good, and she was, you're right, she was taken way too young. Fifty nine is way too young. Um, Robert Downey, yeah. and I, I don't know next about much about the next individual, but uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s personal assistant and good friend Jimmy Rich passed away May fifth at the age of fifty two. It was, a, I believe, he died in a car accident. Uh, Rich was is credited oh. as Downey's personal assistant on twenty two films. And I think they're starting in like two thousand three. So every movie that Robert Downey Jr. appeared in, Rich appears in the credits as his personal assistant from 2003 on. Um, They they were very, very close. He was also very close with, like, the entire cast of the Avengers. All all of them paid tribute to him uh, this past week when he passed away. So I'll leave the last one for you. The last one is another personal one. Architect Helmut John passed away yesterday, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, on May 10th at the age of 81. Did you know he died in a bicycle accident? Yeah, I believe I heard that. Yes. Yeah, sad. I don't mean to dwell upon that, you know. But born in Germany in 1940, uh, John uh, moved to the U.S. in the mid-60s. Chicago became his adopted home and is most known for the design for the James R. Thompson building and the Terminal 1 at the uh, O'Hare Airport. But what I will say about Helmut John, two things. I remember reading an article. He was on the cover of GQ way back in like 1987. But for those that have never seen the Thompson Center downtown, it is breathtaking. It's got like this aqua marine and like pinkish quality for anybody that's seen the Thompson Center. He was brilliant. That's it. That's all I got. Uh, I was actually I walked by the Thompson Center when it was before it was open to the public, uh, and they were filming mm-hmm. uh, the movie Running Scared with Billy uh, Crystal and Gregory Hines inside. Yeah. Didn't know what they were, yeah, didn't right. know what they were filming at the time, but that's what they were filming. So uh, yeah, um, yeah, it is a beautiful. I've been in it a couple times actually on business, and uh, yes, um, it's stunning architecture. So rest in peace, Mr. John. All right, and that means it's time for our discussion here on Cinema Talk. You've got Jay Schultz and Bruce Stout, and on the line, a very, very good friend of mine, Matt Fagerholm from Indie Independent, right, Matt? And it's ebert.com, correct? Oh, you got it. RogerEbert.com and IndieOutlook.com That's is my blog. Although, yes, my, my, my main day job is the Ebert site, indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. And Matt and, I have, Matt and I have known each other for quite some time. We worked at the Woodstock Independent newspaper together. Uh, I got to watch Matt blossom and, and get his dream job, uh, you know, working uh, as a film critic in the industry and traveling across the world. And that's what we brought you on today, Matt, to talk about what's it like to be a film critic but i'm gonna let bruce ask the questions because i know all about you and i want people out there listening (laughs) to learn because if i ask questions i'm just going to jump in with stuff i know about you but it's better to let bruce ask those questions so people actually learn about you so all right you guys go at it and if you need anything from me i'll jump right in okay thank you jay yeah that's great to meet you bruce 
You know, it's an honor to meet you too, Matt. You've got a terrific resume. If you worked uh, directly or indirectly with Roger Ebert, that's a great, like Jay said, uh, a dream job. And it's it's wonderful uh, to meet you. But, you know, I'm going to start, first of all, I'm going to start with a ridiculous question. How do you pronounce your last name again? There's nothing ridiculous about that. That is just the the, it is the conundrum of, of my life from the very beginning. When my mom got married to my dad and she's like, oh, I can't wait to be you know, called Miss, you know, Mrs. Fager home at a restaurant. And they say, oh, is Mrs. Flagger Holt there? And she's like, oh, it's going to be a long marriage. You know, it's going to be, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be one pronunciation no, after another. So, so yeah, after so another, we, right. all, we all say it, but maybe the people in Sweden or Finland may have a different way of pronouncing it. But the way we do it, it's kind of like Frankenstein and young Frankenstein. We just decided it's Fagerholm. So there you go. <laughs> it's not, it's not Frankenstein or it's not Frankenstein. It, it, I, know. You, I, you, I you caught that. Totally you don't me, think you, I did. You totally call me Frankenstein if you want. <laughs> it's totally fine. <laughs> Man, it's an honor to meet you. No, I gotta, I gotta ask you a question. I want to start off with this: is that you are a professional film reviewer and or movie critic, and I totally respect and appreciate that. Um, but what, what it was most the burning question I wanted to ask you when Jay said, you know, we were going to host you, I gotta ask this question: when I was in growing up in Ohio, I worked in movie theaters and I was studying theater and film and so forth i gotta ask you was there like between siskel and ebert was there an allegiance there because when i was like at the ripe old age of i don't know 14 years old i would side with gene siskel and then later on i defected to roger ebert you could call I guess, but uh, you know, so I went from the Tribune to the Sun Times. You know, Siskel was obviously the Tribune, and then Roger Ebert was the Sun Times. Growing up, did you have kind of an allegiance? That's the question I would ask you. Well, I was always very much in Ebert's camp, although I loved both Siskel and Ebert. I loved watching them on the show because they brought so much of their own personalities, their own quirks, just just their own selves to the reviewing. So you enjoy just watching these two uh, very strong personalities ricochet off, off one another, as you do with all of the great yes. comedy duos uh, throughout history. But they also had very, they were very perceptive. And what was, what I liked about Ebert was, you know, he was the, he's the Pulitzer prize winner. I mean, he's really the one who's more renowned for his writing between the two, even though Gene Siskel was a great columnist and he was certainly a wonderful, uh, you know, commentator, you know, along with Ebert. But, you know, Ebert was the one who, you know, when I got my first, uh, volume of his work, you know, he, he, he would sell them in just mm-hmm. a huge, like, here's the 1997 movie guide. I would just devour those reviews, like, every morning at breakfast before going to school, and that that's really what ignited <laughs> my love of writing about film. Well, you couldn't make that up, Matt. That's got to be the <laughs> truth, and you can oh, yeah. straighten me out about something. If I'm not mistaken, Roger Ebert wrote way back in the 70s or early 80s, he wrote the sequel to the the screenplay, I should say, for Valley of the Dolls, like, two, like, the sequel. Is that true? No, so the, this was a really uh, subversive parody of Valley of the Dolls called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls that he wrote for yes. his friend Russ Meyer. Uh, who, who, Russ you know, who Meyer. Mm-hmm. 
you know, looked at today seem to come from a different universe. It was back in the late 60s, or it might have been 1970. <laughs> I'd have to check. And, and but yeah, right at, at that time, you know, I mean, Russ Meyer was so much about uh, having strong female characters that, of course, you know, you're looking, you know, they're all dressed very suggestively, and that they're very, very much the dominating characters in the film. So it's, just, it's a fascinating, very bizarre time capsule looking back at all this. <laughs> You know, well, the other thing, Matt, that I'd like to point out, and Jay, this goes for you too. I, I what I kind of wrestle with about professional film critics, or you know, which uh, is kind of what we're talking about right now. Sometimes, to be honest with you, though, Matt. I'd love hearing the everyman as far as, okay, let's say a person, for example, sees Psycho. Okay, what did you take yeah. away from that film? But sometimes there's a time and place for a professional film critic. Um, and then, but there's also a time and place for the everyday Joe. You know, why did the exorcist oh, yeah. scare you or scared you and sometimes i think the most resonant and the most enduring comments come from a movie goer they're not professional film critics you know what i'm saying what's yeah. your take on that no I, I think that's uh that's absolutely what made ebert resonate more than so many of his colleagues you know across just the realm of people who are regular movie lovers because he didn't approach sure film criticism from this elitist perch that it was like, it was only among yes. intellectuals that we can have this discourse. He was, he was a populist in the best sense in that he wanted to engage people to just not be just a passive movie going, which is perfectly fine. Sometimes you go to the movies, you just want right. to blank out and just enjoy the escapism. Yeah. But I think oh. what the role of the film critic is, is not to be the end all opinion about a movie, but just to engage and inspire people to think more critically about the work. I think that's really their function. Yes, yes. And there are certain parameters, to be sure. There are certain, you know, parameters. And like, like you know, Matt, I studied, uh, not only did I study theater, I also studied film when I was in college. But I always felt, uh, I always felt that was very enduring. And I think, like you just said a moment ago, it's like, Ultimately, it's up to the individual. It's up to yeah. the person that purchases their ticket. And, you know, their opinions can be very varied. And that's exactly the way, you know, it should be. And, and, and I want yeah. your take on this. Are you a fan, Matt, of repertory uh, movie theaters, cinemas, uh, repertory houses? Like oh, the God. music I mean, I, uh, or the biograph? Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, the, the music box theater is is like my home away from home, and that actually was one of the last yeah. things I did right before the pandemic. Was I wrote my first essay for the official music box catalog? It was for my favorite film from the previous year, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and it was gonna have this big long run at the music box, and I think it was still playing there right as the pandemic hit, and uh, that's one of the things I, I've missed the most, uh, you know, during, you know, the past 14 months or so has just been missing that wonderful communal experience. They have 70 millimeter festivals. They bring in an extra big screen. They show these incredible films and these clear film prints. And, oh, yes, I'm a huge, huge fan of those theaters. Absolutely. Matt, did you ever work in an actual cinema movie theater? Yeah, I, you know, my first job <laughs> was not at a you know, very uh, high profile theater, but it was at the Regal Showplace in, in uh, Crystal Lake. That was my first job in uh, high school. And then I later worked at the smaller downtown McHenry downtown movie theater owned by Scott Dean, who who also owns the McHenry Outdoor Theater, 
which had a very successful season last year amidst the pandemic because they were very smart about keeping the cars and the people in them socially distanced. And they would show films like Wizard of Oz and E.T. And it was just a wonderful experience to have any semblance of a communal movie going experience amidst the pandemic, because a lot of people, including myself, are not quite ready to go back. But I think, you know, as we see all with the, you know, success of Godzilla versus Kong recently uh, in theaters, I think people are gradually migrating back, you know. Yeah, you know, it's it, it you know, it's strange, Matt. Just so you know, like you didn't ask for my resume, but yes, I did, you know, when I was in college studying theater, I assistant managed, you know, in Dayton, Ohio, um, a repertory house. And, you know, it's kinda like what you're talking about, like with the music box or biograph, we would show films that were off the beaten track. And I'm going back to like the late eighties, so that's how long oh, ago yeah. it was. But I I garnered an education just just being there. Jay, do you wanna chime in? Well, I just I wanted to delve into Matt's you know, when he knew that this is what he wanted to do, right? When, when did you know you wanted yeah. to be a film yeah. critic, Matt? And, and when, at that point, did you, did you plot the course? Was it kind of like, you know, you got into college and like, you know, I think I want to do this type of thing. I knew I wanted to do something involved in film. And I think it was more, I think it was my, my mom. It was like friends. It was like people who aren't me looking outside of myself and saying, well, well, this guy, is going to be a writer. I didn't see it that clearly. I thought, well, maybe I'll be a filmmaker. Maybe I'll do this. And that was the nice thing about yeah. going to Columbia College in Chicago is when you're in the film corps, you try everything. You try the editing, you try the cinematography, you do the writing. And, and it was, then I, from that, I saw really what my strengths were. But if I have to be honest, I mean, it was really when I started re- reading reviews and it wasn't just Ebert. The first book I read was Leonard Maltin's, uh, uh, you know, basically he was the IMDB before I, <laughs> for the internet of just yeah. huge dictionary. Even existed. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was just like you know, a few sentences. He'd summarize his thoughts on a film in a few sentences, he and his contributors. And I remember reading his like four star little paragraph on Mary Poppins. And it just, cause it hit me cause I loved Mary Poppins so much. And I was like, he just somehow captured how I felt about that movie in those few sentences. And that inspired me somehow like it was just a hobby like like writing reviews I never saw as, as my job it was always a hobby and it was only when I was convinced to submit my work to the uh school paper in college I was like well maybe this is something I want to do as my day job yeah. it, was, it, was not, it was not something that was clear to me so that's no that's great and I think Jay and I have talked about this before Mary Poppins and I'm not gonna I would never dare ask your age Mary Pop, you know Julie Andrews Mary Poppins yeah. was like one of my favorite you know musicals of all time and then I wound up acting in musicals later you know later on in life but Mary Poppins which had to have been like 1971 or something like that but it was my you know Julie Andrews is Mary Poppins that was one of my favorite celebrity crushes you know what I mean yeah. and um yeah no and I and I get that so in other words you said earlier it's kind of like a hobby that later turned into your vocation and Jay is right that is a dream job it sure is and yeah let's so we've already established why you got into it what is the greatest joy about being a film critic or you know a movie reviewer what would you say I I think the greatest joy is when you have written something that resonates with people, resonates with readers who go back to you and say, thank you for telling me about this movie. I wouldn't have seen it 
otherwise, or when yeah. you write about someone and they thank you. And I'll just do this as a jumping off from Mary Poppins, which I agree. I mean, that film is from 1964 and it still plays like gangbusters Before. in the theater. I saw it, I saw it at the music box with, with kids and it was, and as much as I enjoyed personally, the, the new Mary Poppins returns, which I liked just as an homage, a loving homage to the original, it doesn't hold a candle sure. to what that original was. And the audience response to an audience now watching that in the theater was 10 times bigger than what it was for, you know, the new one. But uh, Julie Andrews, I mean, I got to interview her right before the pandemic. I interviewed her on the phone, her, her and her daughter, Emma Walton Hamilton, who just wrote their own uh, memoir. It was, she, basically her daughter's helping her write her memoirs. And they wrote the second part of her memoirs recently, which was homework. And it's about all of her Hollywood movie roles and getting that experience. I mean, I, I just don't think there's anything higher than that in terms of what, in terms of what my no no and I get that to be a writer yeah, yeah. well Matt yeah. let me and let she, me ask your opinion about she, her, her work still resonates with with people and oh okay. it, it does resonate sure it does um one of the things I took away from Roger Ebert when he was reviewing like let's say for example a Steven Spielberg movie now Hollywood legend I think even Hitchcock falls into this category but we'll just isolate on Steven Spielberg um oh, yeah. the legend has it like Jaws for example if he you know Steven Spielberg directed Jaws that's really what put him on the map if you ask me but according to Roger Ebert and I love this story apparently what he would do, Steven Spielberg, he would sit in the back of the cinema. So when Brucey, the big shark from Jaws, he would actually sit in the movie theater and gauge the reaction of the filmgoer. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. I think, you know, that is a mandate of, you know, how effective whatever movie you're making is. And I, I love that story. And supposedly he's not the only director that did that. But what are your thoughts? Oh, I know. I think that's such a great story. And, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's absolutely you can connect. Uh, there's, a, there's a cinematic umbilical cord almost between Spielberg and Hitchcock because Hitchcock's yes. famous quote was that you could play an audience. He wants to play an audience like a piano. And that's absolutely what Spielberg Like a piano. Is. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's what they do at the McHenry Downtown Theater. They'd show old films sometimes at night for like the high school kids, the college kids would come over and, you know, they'd show Jaws. And, you know, still you could throw that film in front of an audience now and people jump at the exact moments that Spielberg wanted them to, particularly right. the scene where there's a severed head that shows up all of a sudden. And, yeah, and that's like, the one that scares me the most. Yes, it, I know that it. scene. It's the biggest jump in the movie and, and Spielberg saw that it wasn't working with the audience and it was like after one of the previews and he's like I have to go right back we have to we have to stop this film from going out we have to get that cut right and my god did he get it cut right it was amazing you know there was a great uh documentary um about jaws and it's exactly what you're saying matt it's like yeah that, and that is in my opinion the jump the jump cut or the shot that you're talking about really has nothing directly to do with the shark but it's a guy with like an yeah. eyeball hanging out of his skull you know what i mean yeah and yeah it does and, and time doesn't, like you said, it, it's like time doesn't change that. A scary movie, I don't care if you're talking about The Birds or Psycho or Jaws. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a timelessness to it. There has to be. Go ahead. I'm listening. Yeah. Jay, do you want to chime in? Well, uh, let Matt talk here. I'm, I'm listening. I'm good. Okay, yeah, Matt, no, go I mean, right well, ahead. 
you know, if we're, if we're talking about that severed head, I think what makes it so scary in the film is that I think there's almost a delay on it. I think you kind of see it a bit before you get like the music, you know, like clang, you know, like, like horror music. It, there's, there's something no. about it where it allows you to, to realize it's there before, before the character does in a way, because he's almost not believing that he's seeing it. And, and yeah, that effect is going to work no matter what time period you see it in, you know, because it's not hokey. Mm. It, it, it earns the impact. Yes, it does. Yeah, and it's not hokey. It's it's very resonant, and that's the reason why I guess they call them classics. You know what I mean? It's timeless. It's not, you know, exclusive to a certain generation. It's multiple generations. And, yeah, I got to ask you this, man. I got a burning question for you. Do I have time to ask you this question? Yeah, absolutely. You're good, Bruce. What? (laughs) What? What, I really want to hear Matt's take on this. I have my own answer for this. But, Matt, I don't care if you're talking childhood, adolescence, or adulthood. What film frightened you the most? And there's no wrong answers. It's an opinion question. It's not trivia. What film frightened you to this day more than any other? Oh, that's a good question. It's, uh, I, I think I'd have to say uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which has now become one of my all-time favorite films. But initially, when I saw it, it was my uh, great uncle. When, when, I was, when I, was, I, was, I was quite young at the time, and The Shining is one of his favorite movies, and he lives in Low Point, Illinois. He lives like on a, in a remote town on the, on the top of a hill, not many neighbors around, and he had a lot of like, Native Uh-oh. American paraphernalia in the, in the house. So you really feel like you're in the Overlook Hotel. I felt like I was in the Overlook Hotel watching the film. And, and it was fascinating. I'd never felt such unease. And it was unease that was somehow conjured in brightly lit locations. It wasn't a film about shadows. It was about these really just eerie, uh, you know, all too bright sights. It almost like hurts your eyes to look at. And I, I never forgot it. And I bought the book. I, I think I, I bought the film and then I read the book. And they scared me so much, you know, the, the, the Stephen King novel. And, I, and the novel scared me for different reasons. They had to sleep in a room that was separate from the video cassette and the book. And eventually I just sold them. Like, oh, God, I, can't, I can't even have them in the house. It's too scary. And then it wasn't until years later I revisited them. And it's, I mean, it's a masterpiece. It's one of the cinematic gifts that keeps on giving, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, since you mentioned The Shining, I think that Stanley Kubrick was kind and yes, I know The Shining was written by Stephen King. That that discussion could go on forever and ever and ever. But yeah. I think <laughs> The Shining is claustrophobic like right at the beginning of the film. And it's almost even in a way it's kind of predictable because yes, I was like you, I saw it in the okay. film and I mean, I saw it in the theater, and it it did definitely, but it's like claustrophobic right from the beginning, and then you cast Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance, and already you know you're in for some trouble right there. (laughs) You know what I mean? And you know, I wouldn't say it's predictable, but yes, it's very, it's very frightening. It's very claustrophobic, and you're right about the cinematography and the lighting. But if you see any yeah. documentaries about Stanley Kubrick, you know, Clockwork Orange, 2001, A Space Odyssey, obviously Shining, which we're talking about, I can see where that would scare you. Do you want to hear mine, or do we have time for that, Jay? I don't know. Uh, real quickly, Bruce. Oh, I'd love to. Halloween. <laughs> oh, yes. Halloween, 1978. 
And Matt, I am 54 years old. I still can't watch that movie in broad daylight. <laughs> That's how much it frightened me. And Jay knows this because yeah. we've talked about it. But yeah, John Carpenter, Matt, he was to me our generation's uh, Stanley Kubrick. Or, uh, oh my gosh, there's so many great directors out there. But all right, Jay, do you uh, want to chime in? I know our time is limited. Well, just I know Matt the. Tell us real quickly when you started working for, for uh, Ebert.com for Chaz, Chaz Ebert, and tell us how that happened. Did you interview with her? Yes, I interviewed with her. Uh, it was in early 2014. I can't remember exactly what the, even, what, what the month was. I remember when I was finally allowed to announce it on my blog on Indie Outlook. <laughs> I can look up exactly that, but it was somewhere around 2014. It was a year after Roger died, and, and when Roger died, it was, it was like a few months after I had finally moved back to the city after being in the suburbs for a while. And that's when I met you in the Woodstock independent right. and I moved back to Chicago in December, 2012. And when Roger passed in April of 2013, I, I showed up at the public uh, service at like three in the morning. Like I, I got there way early before the huge crowd of people would show up because that's what he meant to me. I was yeah. like, I, I have to be here to honor him somehow. And I even remember walking up to Chaz afterwards and just telling her how much he meant to me and, and, and she needed to hear that. I mean, she was, she was surrounded by just the love of people who, mm-hmm. you know, are, are film critics and film lovers because of her husband. And uh, so somehow, and, I, and I'm not even entirely sure to be honest. I, I, I had talked, I, I know for a fact that I interviewed a filmmaker named Nathan Adloff, who used to help them out uh, with uh, various, I think he was like their tech guy. And he was the first person I interviewed for my Indie Outlook blog. And he put a, in a good word for me. Uh, they, they were looking to say, we're thinking of bringing on some people onto the site to help. And he put in a good word for me. And I think that somehow led to me getting interviewed uh, by Chaz. And then eventually they, it was, it was for like an editorial position. And she, she said she liked me so much. She wanted to just create uh, a position for me, which was uh, an assistant editor position. And mm-hmm. so it was never fully defined what that position was, but it would include editing and be including assisting with the site to be uh, different editorial duties. And uh, it, it's just been a, a, absolutely just one of the great honors of my life to be uh, working for her and the site and to keep Roger's legacy alive. I think it's just so important. Well, and, and to, that, to that effect, um, that the job has given you an amazing opportunity. You've been, uh, is tw- it twice the Academy Awards? Is that correct? I, I went to the Academy Awards three years in a row. It was the last wow. three pre-pandemic years. <laughs> I, I, I covered the Oscars, and and it was it was a great experience because Roger, you know, as long as he was alive, he you know he, basically after he became a celebrity on Siskel and Ebert, uh, you know the Academy was like you don't have to be in the press room with all those people. It's like hundreds of people. It's almost like an auction. Everyone's crammed together, writing and trying to get a word in edgewise with the, with the winners as they come in. It's like you don't have to do that. You can just sit in the Kodak Theater, enjoy the show, and then write about me like, no, I'm, I'm a journalist like I yeah. actually want to be in the yeah. second and I want and he was a journalist through and through and so just getting to be in, in you know basically in his in his footsteps in a sense retracing to that press room and not getting any sleep at night and writing all night and trying to do the best job you can it was just an absolute honor to have that experience absolutely well I, I tell you Matt one of my favorite moments uh the past three years was hearing you Ask Taika Waititi, one of my favorite uh, writer directors, a question. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, that's Matt asking a question. I'm losing my mind hearing that. And uh, I mean, that has to be you. You know, um, you, you mentioned earlier you interviewed Julie Andrews, and I can't imagine 
there being anyone else that could say, okay, I consider this person a better interview. I mean, that, that Julie Andrews is like the pinnacle for me, or, you know, maybe Christopher Plummer, if he was still here, you know, that would be, you know, something like oh, that, or, yeah. or Anthony Hopkins. I mean, you're talking about an iconic actress, uh, but are there any other interviews that you've done that stick out? Uh, I'll give you two. So, so yeah. the pinnacle for me always throughout my life was Julie Andrews and Frank Oz. Uh, oh. it was, you know, the Muppet creator, oh, wow. the wonderful director. And I got to interview him and his wife in 2018 for their documentary Muppet Guys Talking. And that that was I mean, it really I, I put him and Juliet at that same level of just childhood heroes, getting to talk yeah. to them and finding them to be as wonderful as you would hope they'd be. Uh, it was just a tremendous thing. And also you know, what made talking to Taika so special at that moment was the fact that I had gotten to cover a festival in the Czech Republic. Uh, the previous year, and I met this actress, Thomas and McKenzie, and her wonderful family, wonderful New Zealand family at that festival. I got to interview her, and she was in the process of shooting uh, Jojo Rabbit at that time. Uh So she was like going back from from the festival uh, back to shooting (laughs) in Prague, the film. So I was aware of this Jojo Rabbit happening a year before uh, it actually came out, and then to see Taika win for that was it was a wonderful uh, uh, thing to see. He's just he's a huge talent. No, he's he's wonderful. He, he's a terrific talent. Bruce, do you have anything? Yeah, you know, Matt, uh, man, you could write a whole biography with all <laughs> yeah. the information. That, that oh, he didn't even he didn't even mention that. Ed Asner and Betty White. I mean, this man has interviewed some. I would like die. <laughs> to meet Ed Asner or Betty White. I, that would be like a pinnacle. You could, okay, just roll me down the hall and pack me in a room. I'm done. You know, I mean, it, just wonderful <laughs> interviews, Matt, really. Well, thank yeah, you so much. That, and it was such an honor to do that yeah. for the Independent back yeah. in the day. I mean, that was back when they were <laughs> showing up at the Opera House in Woodstock, and it was great. It's really been an honor to, you know, have all those experiences. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll share one thing with you, Matt, and I'll share it with you too, Jay. Um, you said you've covered the Oscars, which I totally respect that. And that's gotta be a wonderful thrill, but, um, I'll leave you with this thought. Um, I gotta say, cause I, with the Oscars were like, what a month and a half, not even a month and a half ago. I mean this year, but, um, yeah. did you guys ever see Roberto Benini's acceptance speech? Oh yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh I, my I, I was god! And I remember him walking on those chairs. That was that was like the first foreign film I think yep. I saw with subtitles. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, <laughs> life is beautiful. Oh my god, that's what I was going to say. So, all right, guys, I think we had met. It was an honor to meet you. Oh my god, and listen to your stories. And hopefully, Jay, uh, we can meet up with Matt in the future. Yeah, Matt, Matt, thank you very much. Um, I hope to see you. Let me know. Please let me know when you're planning to come to Woodstock. Go to them. I will go to a movie. I'll I'll make the time. I really love to see or come to the alley, have dinner. I mean, whatever you want to do, whenever you're up here uh, in Woodstock area, let me know. I'd love to see you. All right. I would love to see a movie with both of you in person someday. I think it was a total pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, guys, I'll... thank you, man. All right. I'll wrap it up here, guys. Thanks. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. I want to thank uh, my co-host, uh, uh, Bruce Stout, and our guest today, Matt Fegerholm. And thanks to everyone for listening to Cinema Talk with Bruce and Jay. <laughs>